0: Now, if you feel like you're spending too much on your beauty routine, you need to know about Beauty Pie. Rosie and I have been members for months now and we love when our orders arrive. Beauty Pie stocks high quality skincare, hair care, makeup
1: and more direct from the best labs in Switzerland, France, Germany and Japan for unbeatably low prices. There are no middlemen, no huge retailer markups so you shop and get up to five times more for your money. It's just genius.
0: And right now, join Beauty Pie and use the code LKSENTME, all one word, in the promo code box at checkout and you will get £10 off your first order. Go to beautypie.com to find out more. Hello, my name's Rosie. And I'm Lorraine. And this is What If, the show that examines life's what if moments. I guess it's all about those times when you find yourself at a crossroads and you have to decide what path you're going to take
1: yeah and for every path you choose there's one or two that you might have decided to leave behind and how does this change and affect your life
0: yeah because we've all had those moments haven't we well in this podcast we'll be walking that unbeaten path with an incredible lineup of celebrity guests asking them that all important question what if This week our guest is British astronaut Tim Peake who spent
1: 186 days on the International Space Station.
0: Where he ran a marathon and also presented a Brit Award to Adele.
1: And you're a big space geek. Did he give you a a gift when you went to NASA?
0: He did. you know how I went to NASA for astronaut training? Mm -hmm. He actually gave me a little badge that was fantastic but also had been in the International Space Station. He actually took it up there. So it's my prized possession
1: most kids want to be an astronaut when they grow up was it something that you wanted to do
2: There was a time where, yes, when I wanted to go to space and I was, I I guess, like most boys and girls, you look up at the stars and there's just this fascination and wonder. And that was certainly the case with me as well. But I think it migrated towards aviation in my teenage years, because when I started to really think about what I could do when I grow up, I guess I didn't think that astronaut was on the cards. We seemed to watch the Americans and the Russians doing this. And I was watching the space shuttle being launched and the Mir space station being built. Helen Sharman hadn't flown to space at this point. So we'd never seen anybody with a, a British flag fly to space. So for me, it was aviation that was the passion. And that really took over in my teenage years. And then much later in life, of course, that led to an opportunity to go to space myself. So I say, yes, I was I was fascinated with space, but I never realistically thought I could become an astronaut.
1: Mm. And what were you like at school? I think a lot of people think if they are going to be an astronaut, they have to have like straight A's and be at school and all the time.
2: Yeah. So that wasn't me. (laughs) I think I loved outdoor activities at school. I liked the practical elements of classwork. I mean, I wasn't too bad in my GCSEs. I loved science and maths and I studied maths, physics and chemistry for A-level. And I wanted at one point to go on and do a degree in aeronautical engineering. I was looking to uh, University of Manchester to go there. But I kind of took my eye off the ball a little bit in my A-level years. And flying was such a passion, such a draw. I was already speaking to the army. I was going through my Sandhurst application process and I just wanted to get on and do what I knew I would love as a career. So that meant that I left school with a C, D and an E in A levels, which wasn't you know, as much as I'd hoped for. But I think it just goes to show that you can always pick yourself back up. You can always catch up. On studies, I I went back to university at uh, 33. I uh, did a, or well, not, I didn't go full time university. I did it as a, a course while I was doing my test pilots. So I, I went and got a degree at 33. So I had a bit of catching up to do.
0: Wow, but that's brilliant that you were able to do that. What do you think would have happened? I mean, what if if you hadn't actually decided that that was the career for you, that you were going down that path? Because obviously you had that, you know, you wanted to fly. What do you think you would have done otherwise?
2: Uh, it's, I mean, that's a fascinating question, Lorraine, because I think that, you know, with the what ifs, I mean, everything, you know, stemmed from getting into aviation early. And I think if I'd gone to Manchester, if I'd got a, a degree in aeronautical engineering, I probably wouldn't have, you know, got into flying. Or if I had, then maybe it would have been as a hobby or, uh, you know, a much shorter career as opposed to being my absolute full-time driving passion and something that I, I went on and spent 17 years doing. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. Um, you know, I think it would have been a, a hugely defining moment for me as to that route at the age of 17, 18. What was I going to do? Was I going to go off and join the army or was I going to go to university and get a degree?
0: And incredible that that led to you actually going into space. I mean, it's, it is the kind of thing that dreams are made of. I mean, I still want to be an astronaut when I grew up. It's <laughs> still my <laughs> ambition. Isn't mean, it? Is remarkable, isn't it? That that sort of journey that you went on.
2: It is. It is. And, you know, I pinch myself when I look back and I I could never have planned that out. Um, there's no way. And I, I, th- I think people say that about their careers and their life stories anyway. When you look back, there are so many big decisions that you make, so many turning points. And I guess you can say sever- that you never know how things would have worked out if you'd done things differently. A great story is um, Chell Lindgren, who's a really good friend of mine, a NASA astronaut, and I was his backup crew. And he started off wanting to be an astronaut from an early age. And he did everything possible to become a U.S. Air Force officer, to fly and then to go through test pilot school because he thought that's the route to becoming an astronaut. And he didn't make it. And he was absolutely devastated to not make it as a test pilot and to have to give up his flying career. And there was a major change then in his 20s where he decided to go back, study medicine and become a doctor. And he flew to space as a qualified flight surgeon, you know, many, many years later. So you never know which route your life is going to take. And doors don't necessarily close just because, you know, you fail at something and you choose another course.
1: And what then sort of made you decide to be an astronaut and apply for it?
2: I think it was one of those really funny moments where I was working at Augusta Wessons. I'd just left the army uh, and I'd just got my first civilian job, if you like, proper civilian job. And I was loving it. I was I was working as a test pilot and I saw the application that the European Space Agency sent out. And it was this groundbreaking moment because up until then, We had watched European astronauts fly to space as well uh, in the UK, but we had never been invited. We weren't part of the Human spaceflight Programme, so the UK had never been invited to send an astronaut to the European Space Agency. And this was the moment where ESA in 2008, they said, look, this application is open to all member states of the European Space Agency. We don't care whether or not you're involved in the Human Space Programme. We just want everyone who's interested to apply. And so this was the first time that anybody in the UK had ever been able to apply to become a career astronaut while still wearing a union flag without having to change their nationality to the US or another nation. So we had a huge number of applicants in the UK. I mean, there were thousands and I was one of them. And that for me was just the the moment where I thought, wow, this is my chance. This is my opportunity.
1: And you beat 8,000 applicants. Like that's Insane. Um, (laughs) Where were you when you got the call? Do you remember the whole experience of getting that call?
2: Absolutely, yes. Well, it ended up being... So late in the day, it was Monday night and the press conference was going to be on the Wednesday. And I just thought at that point, ESA will have told the successful candidates they would have been briefed, they'd have been having practices, PR sessions, all the rest of it. So Monday night, a phone call came through from Paris and I thought, this is the polite rejection call. Sorry, Tim, you didn't make it, but, you know, well done. Uh, So I picked up the phone and and I was literally sat in front of the telly with Rebecca. We were having a bite to eat and a glass of wine. And they said to him, would you like to join the European Astronaut Corps? (laughs) So it wasn't quite the scene I'd imagined, but I was delighted nonetheless. Yeah, I mean, a whole mix of emotions there. Obviously, you know, absolutely excited and thrilled. But I was, again, so many things running through my head. I was like, "Wow, I, you know, I'd been thinking, okay, we're going to move down to Yeovil, we're going to buy a house, settle down with Westlands Helicopters, and start flying there." And then now suddenly it was this journey into the unknown with ESA, and who knows where it might lead to.
0: No, that's true. And I guess you—I mean, you mentioned there, um, your wife Rebecca, a huge, huge supporter, of course. But you would have had to both of you sit down and have a really. Heart-to-heart conversation about that because it's not just life-changing for you, it's life-changing for the family.
2: You know, we had spoken seriously about it just before the medical selection because, you know, the whole ESA process takes about a year and you go through different phases and at the beginning you know there were so many people involved and it was great you'd go there you'd meet like-minded people it was a bit of a fun social event and it was a journey for everyone and, and everyone was getting a lot out of it but as you got further through the process you became much more involved your commitment was so much greater and you started to believe that maybe there was a chance of doing this And the medical week, it's it's quite invasive and uh, (laughs) it's very expensive for the Space Agency as well. I mean, it's a whole week long of, you know, in-depth medical tests from ultrasounds to bone density to cardiovascular MRIs. And so before doing that, I said to Rebecca, look, we need to be very serious that we're happy to follow this through as a family if I pass. So we, we kind of had that discussion back in the Christmas winter time, And Rebecca was at that point, she was only a few weeks away from giving birth to Thomas, our eldest child. So also, you know, when I started the selection process, we didn't even know Rebecca was pregnant. So now we had, you know, an extra person to think about in the family as well. Uh, but we just decided, you know, you've got to grasp these opportunities in life, you've got to take them when they come. And sometimes you've got to take that journey into the unknown.
0: And also, I suppose for you, There you are on the brink of becoming a dad as well. You know, there's all of these things going through your mind. It's such a time of of real change. Was there ever a moment where you sort of thought, do you know what, I don't know that I can do this. I'm not sure if this is the right thing to do. Were there any doubts at all?
2: Yes, all, are there are all, doubts and you second guess yourself and you definitely start thinking about that, you know, the, what are we doing? And I've got a fantastic job here with Westlands. You know, they don't come along very often. They're kind of like one in 20 year jobs. And am I going to turn this down and embark on a career with a space agency that, that had no guarantee of a mission to space? I mean, I, I knew I'd be joining at a time where the UK still weren't involved in the process. So am I giving up my test flying career? to something that's going to lead to nothing so there were all these doubts but in some ways I think that sometimes when your life's in a bit of flux anyway making the big decisions becomes easier and I was in this transition I was going to have to move house anyway we were moving jobs anyway so maybe that made it a bit easier to just say do you know what let's just you know it's not Somerset it's it's Cologne.
1: Wow and what was the hardest part of training?
2: Uh, Well, there are so many uh, parts of training which, uh, uh, you know, uh, you have to really apply yourself to the whole way through. And I think everybody's different. Um, I lapped up all of the sort of technical side of it. It, To me, the space station is just like another aircraft. So I was into the systems. I understood it. I could really absorb all that. I love the spacewalk training, the parabolic flight training. But it came down to the simple thing of learning Russian. Um, Mm. I just don't think my brain is wired for learning languages. I'm a little bit dyslexic as well, and I think that that probably doesn't help when you're trying to learn a complicated language like Russian as well. And so, for me, I struggled. I I really struggled. I had endless teachers who tried all sorts of different techniques with me. (laughs) There would always be a point in every lesson where I'd see their eyes roll and thinking, (laughs) how can this person fly a spacecraft? But they have no idea, you know, how to form a simple sentence in Russian. Well, it's Uh, a tough language, though. I was going to say, I want to try,
0: because... You learned Russian. I did. I did it at school. Um, it wow, was it, wow. it, I mean, well, I think once you learn the, the alphabet, because obviously the alphabet is totally different, but what used to just drive me crazy was they'd say, so that's the rule for there, apart from... And then there was tons and tons and tons of extra <laughs> things you had to learn. It was just, oh gosh. But of course, you have to learn Russian because it's the sort of universal language, if you like. If you've got English and Russian, I guess you're there.
2: That's right. And we launch with the Russians. So even though yeah. uh, we don't we don't use Russian so much on the space station. But yeah, during launch and reentry, I mean, everything is in Russian uh, All communication, mission control, you know, all communication between the three crew members, nobody speaking English.
0: Do you remember yeah, any? Is. I wonder
2: if you guys can talk. Oh, about
0: it. I don't think I could remember any of it at all. Um <laughs> the only time that I could speak Russian really well uh, was about probably about 10 years ago and I went to a Russian bar in New York and I may have had one or two vodkas and it's incredible how after a few vodkas yeah. you become <laughs> somehow very fluent.
2: <laughs> and I was it I was, certainly helped.
0: Yeah, and I was being taught words that I don't think you would ever need for a for a, yeah. a launch. <laughs> They were all a bit naughty. (laughs) They were all very, very naughty indeed. But you know what? Rosie and I were talking about this. You know, when I just think the moment when you're actually sitting there and you hear those words in your ear, don't you? The countdown. Mm. I mean, that and, and then the sheer force. It just, I wonder what that's like. You know, it's something that so few of us have experienced.
2: It. It's, it's incredible. And it's I mean, the noise and the vibration come first. And uh, you, you've got this rocket that's just going through the engine light up. And it goes to a kind of intermediate thrust for about five seconds. So you're sat there on the launch pad, and the noise of those engines and you can feel that this thing just wants to launch itself into space, it's being held down in place. And then the engines come up to full thrust, and you get this enormous kick, and that's it, you're off. But it's just unbelievable. And it's actually quite a slow build up in terms of the acceleration, because when it lifts off the launch pad, you know, you've got 300 tons of rocket. Uh, it's about 9 million horsepower, so it's, you know, it's, it's, a good, old, it's good old acceleration going on there. But actually, the acceleration builds and builds and builds because as it burns off the fuel, it gets lighter and lighter. And so the thrust from the engines is having even more effect. And it's incredible. You get up to about four G's and and then the second stage kicks off and then the third stage. So you're going through all these different stages and each one is exciting in its own way. I think actually the most exciting part is the last stage, because that's when you're up in space, And that's all about getting to 25 times the speed of sound. So you're almost horizontal at that point. You can see out the window and you realize you've gone horizontal. And and that's just a crazy speed. You can't comprehend how fast you're going.
1: And when you're up in space, I mean, when you get there, what if you don't like it? Like, you can't exactly like... Hand an Uber. Yeah, you can't go back, can you? But you can go back eventually. But what if you, what if you are up there and you're like, oh, this actually isn't for me? Because a lot of people get their job and they're like, oh, you know, I don't yeah. like this. I'm in my probation period. I'll just leave. You can't really yeah. do that. So.
2: You're, you're there. No. <laughs> I think it happened to a couple of shuttle astronauts who spent their entire 10 days in space throwing up and feeling oh. miserable. And there's no way of telling who's going to suffer from space sickness. So we've had fast jet test pilots who have spent, you know, a few days being sick and being miserable. And we've had people who've had zero flying experience at all who've gone up and felt absolutely fine. So, yeah, you're right. You know, you could get up there and think this is dreadful. But the good news is, in a six month mission, even if you feel dreadful for a few days, you know, you're going to get over it. Everybody adapts to space at some point. And then it's just, you know, an incredible environment. I don't think you could possibly go through all the training if you didn't think you were going to hmm. have an absolute laugh. Okay. There. That,
0: that makes sense. <laughs> and there is that amazing thing, isn't there? I mean, we were talking about that, Rosie, of seeing the Earth from space. I mean, I think that's got to to fundamentally change you in so many ways, you know, because it must look, it's so beautiful. You know, we've seen the photographs, of course, and the, and the footage, and it, it just looks so beautiful, but so fragile, you know, this little ball in all this darkness. It's just quite remarkable.
2: I it is is an unbelievable sight, and it takes you a while to to get used to. It. You kind of as you stay up there for longer and longer and longer, you appreciate it more and more. And there's always something new to look at on Earth. You know, whenever you see the planet, you're seeing it over different lighting conditions. Obviously, you might be over different continents or different oceans, and then you look out the other way, and and you get to see this vast sort of blackness of of space and the Milky Way rising over the horizon. Uh, And it just allows you to put things into perspective. I think you kind of, it's a bit like when you go on holiday and you feel like you're getting away from it all. (laughs) And you can perhaps put into perspective your life back home. Uh, And Sometimes people have their best ideas when they're on holiday because they're just detached from the everyday life. And it's like that in space. You are just detached from the planet. You're floating there, looking down on Earth and seeing Earth as it is, as this tiny rocky planet against this vast black backdrop of space and it makes you realize that we're all living on a spaceship down here we're all orbiting the sun you know going through the solar system at a crazy speed and and there is nothing else out there for a long long way i mean mars is 400 million kilometers away so even one of our closer planets it's a long long way away we're, we're here all by ourselves
0: and looking down on the earth, there's no, there's no borders, there's nothing like that. We're just, you know, it really makes you realise we are a tiny speck, and yeah. all in, all in this together. You know, especially times like we've just gone through.
2: Absolutely, yeah, we are. And you realise that it is actually a small space, and, and everything's all interconnected. You see weather systems, you know, spanning continents. You see hurricanes forming in the Atlantic and, uh, you know, the auroras at the poles. And and as you mentioned there, you don't see any borders. And and you realize that what happens as, as well in one country affects another in terms of the atmosphere. It's so thin, just, you know, 16 kilometers it's weird to see sandstorms being picked up in the Sahara, coming across Spain and Portugal and France and even to the UK. And, uh, and you just realise, wow, you know, it's one small planet with one, one thin atmosphere and, and it makes you appreciate how precious that strip of gas is.
1: You know, it's been a really hard year and sometimes we just need to treat ourselves, which is why we love Beauty Pie, it's a new shopping club created for beauty and product lovers by the women behind
0: Fit Flop Sandals and Bliss Spa and Soap and & Glory. At Beauty Pie, members can shop for fabulously luxurious beauty and wellness products at straight from the warehouse prices. It feels like a splurge, but you're getting a steal. Check it out at beautypie.com. And use the promo code LKSENTME, all one word, to get £10 off your first order when you join.
1: Space travel is probably going to happen
0: soon. (laughs) Yeah, well, we keep hearing this, don't we? That the likes of us, maybe one day, you know, Mm. in in the way that we get the bus into the shops. (laughs) We might be able to do that one day. Wouldn't that be amazing, though? Wouldn't it? Mm, I'd be a little
1: bit too scared. I, oh. I, I, mm, I don't know. I would do it. It's incredible, of but I would be terrified.
0: But whereas I think you would be so excited, that you would. I'd be, be the terrified. front of the queue. Front of the queue. I mean, I would have. I would have hidden in, in, in Tim's suitcase if he could have been <laughs> allowed. I would have been there. But you did amazing things up there. You did astonishing things. You were like, like you ran a marathon. On a treadmill, which is hard enough, but you did that in space. Is it easier because you're floating?
2: Yeah, you're you're right, Rosie. The bits of it are easier (laughs) because you've you've got this bungee system that's keeping you pinned down to the treadmill. uh, And it's like putting on a rucksack. And we can tighten up the bungees, but we can only get about 70% of our full body weight, even if we have them on the maximum strength. So your legs are getting a bit of an easier time. But all of that weight is just on your collarbone really and a little bit on your waist so it's really painful mm. kind of running with this rucksack of your own body weight and then the treadmill is very very narrow so you have to watch every foot placement otherwise you're gonna you know hit the side and you'll you'll be on your face before you know it so there are bits that are easier there are bits that are harder I, I my fingers were numb from you know having the blood circulation cut off to my arms after just about an hour or so I couldn't feel my fingers anymore so perhaps not the best idea to do in hindsight
0: but what an amazing thing to do! Mm. And I loved the fact that you gave a, a Brit Award. Yeah. Who was the two Adele. Adele? Adele, that's right. It was a yeah. Brit Award to Adele.
2: Mm. Yeah, but that was a fun award to do. I loved opening the Six Nations as well, and yeah. uh, NASA were brilliant with that because normally they can send one channel up to the space station, one television channel, and the ISS commander gets to choose. So um, I had six months of split uh, oh, between Scott Kelly and Tim Copra. So with Scott, we had three hmm. months of CNN, and with Tim Copra we had three months of Fox. <laughs> and this was <laughs> all in the lead up to the the Clinton Trump, uh, the Clinton Trump election. So I was getting fed up with the TV channel, and then during the Six Nations, NASA said, "Don't worry, Tim, we're going to send up every Six Nations rugby match to you." So that was brilliant. <laughs>
0: up there for five months. Now, what age would your wee boys have been then?
2: Uh, so Thomas was seven, Oliver was four when I launched Yeah, So Oliver's, you know, still quite young. And I don't think he really uh, fully appreciated what was happening until he watched the rocket go off. And I, I've, I've seen the video playback now of when, you know, the boys were watching the rocket and I could just see in his face this, this kind of realisation that oh, he is actually going to space oh. because... I tried to involve them as much as possible in the training before and I'd, I'd take them to work. I'd shown them the mock-ups. I'd shown them where I'd eat and where I'd sleep. And they'd come to watch me at the swimming pool where we go down and practice spacewalking. So I tried to make it as real as possible for them and help them understand. And Thomas, obviously, he was seven, so he kind of appreciated it much more. But it was great for them you know, to be able to kind of experience that. But clearly, it was really, really hard to say goodbye and to be away for so long.
0: Yeah, it mm. would be Were you able to communicate with them at all? Could you phone them or talk to them or video yeah. With
2: them or... Yeah, we have, <laughs> we actually have great, great communications yeah. from the space. Station. We can um call any number anytime we want. We just go to our crew quarters and just like we are now through mm. you know, through a laptop, we can call any number. So I'd have a list of friends and family and each night I'd just ring a couple of mates and and, and say, Hi, you know, how's it going? And it was really great for me to be able to chat to them from the space station and and they enjoyed getting a call from the ISS too. So, so keeping in touch was uh, was quite easy. And then once a week, we'd have a, a video conference with the family, just sort of 20 minutes. And that was fun as well. It was nice to be able to give them a bit of a tour around the space station and show them a view out the window. And it, I think it really helped.
0: Mm.
1: And did your boys know about the risks involved of you being in space? Or was it all just far too exciting?
2: I think they appreciate that. Thomas did certainly. Oliver, perhaps not so much. But I think Thomas appreciated that there was, you know, risk involved as well. But I think again, but the whole point of trying to show them all the training we were doing was my way of kind of trying to normalize it for them and to, you know, to say, look, this is how we approach things. This is what we expect to do, why we're doing it. And and I think that really helped him. And certainly all of our friends at the time were all astronauts as well. And so their, their children were all mm. um, playing together and, and it just made it a very normal experience for them. I mean, in Thomas's class at school, two of the dads were astronauts, but only one was a firefighter. So the firefighter was far cooler than the astronauts. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I, th- I think it just it just helped being in that kind of astronaut community mm. that uh, made it a bit more normal for them.
0: Oh, that's funny, isn't it? Because normally, I mean, if you went into school and said, my dad's an astronaut, everybody would be like, oh, but if everybody in the school's their dad's an astronaut, then yeah. that's yeah. <laughs> like, oh, OK, then. <laughs> And um, what if
1: one of your boys wanted to be an astronaut when they grow up?
2: Uh, I'd, I'd be fully supportive. I really would. I think one of the greatest things for me and the greatest supports in my life has been my parents. And the fact that they just really supported me and let me do what I wanted to do when I was growing up which was tough for them, I'm sure, because my mum was a midwife, my dad was a journalist. And here was I wanting to go into the army, wanting to fly helicopters, involved in you know, caving and climbing and kayaking and cadets and things. and And that wasn't something that was familiar to them. And You know, I can certainly imagine the worry that I must have caused my mum in particular, you know, going off to the army, becoming a platoon commander in Northern Ireland at the age of 20. And yet I got absolutely nothing but encouragement and 110% support from them. So I would like as a parent, that's all I can try and do is do the same for my children, whatever it is they want to do.
0: Hmm. What if Rosie and I could wave a magic wand and we could say to you, right, get your act together. And tonight... You're going back into space. (laughs) Would you be very happy?
2: I'd be delighted. Oh wow! Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, love it. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Um, One night wouldn't be enough. You know, the thing is, when you're up there, you just want to stay there as long as you can. Uh, But I would just like to glue myself in the cupola window with a camera and just be taking photographs. It's just the most incredible place. And the funny thing was, when Scott Kelly had to return to Earth, he'd been up there for a year we literally had to go and grab him and drag um, <laughs> him to his Soyuz capsule and tell him to go home. Um, and, and that was even after having spent a year in space, you know. Uh, so that just goes to show how, how addictive that environment is.
0: Oh, I can imagine. Absolutely. Do you think, do you honestly think, because we keep saying, we keep hearing, you know, that one day there will hopefully be a base on the moon, that we will actually get to Mars and maybe even beyond, depending on the technology. Are you optimistic that that will happen, that there's a will for that to happen?
2: Oh, absolutely. Yes. Um, and I think that's what's really exciting is I think the public are starting to realise a bit more now that we are on this cusp of, of space exploration, this new era of space exploration. Uh, and it's been growing and growing and building. And, and anyone in the space industry knows this. And I, I think that it's getting out there in the public domain more. I mean, they're just later this year in November, we're hoping to have the first SLS launch. Now, this is NASA's massive rocket they're building, the, the equivalent of the Saturn V. The first one's going to be uncrewed with another Orion spacecraft on it. And then the second mission will be crewed to go round, orbit the moon like they did in Apollo 8. And then with subsequent missions being lunar surface missions. So this is now happening in the next five years. It's not something that we can say, oh, yes, you know, this is 15, 20 years away. 15, 20 years away is landing on Mars, but five years away is landing back on the moon. And and that's to stay with a permanent presence, you know building sustainable habitation modules research centers and this is you know incredible stuff so i think that you know uh, people today we've, we've got some really exciting years coming up in space exploration
0: Mm. It's an incredibly brave thing to do. I mean, I know you kind of like dampen that down a little bit about all the, the bravery, but it is. I mean, you know, you're, you're a pioneer and, and you are incredibly brave. And, you know, you had to do that awful thing of writing a letter to your sons in case you didn't come back. Everybody has to do that. You know, obviously, thank God, you didn't have to actually use that letter. But that's a thing, you know, when you're sitting writing that to your boys, that's a hard thing to do because, you know, it's it's a very emotional thing to do as well.
2: Mm, no, hugely. Um, you know, and I've had friends who've had the same when they're, they've been in the military, you know, gone on operational deployments. And, and you hope that's never going to be the case that that letter has to be opened. But I think it's only fair that you, you know, you try and put down your thoughts and your feelings and your wishes. And to a degree, your explanations as well, because you know that if you don't come back, it's going to be incredibly hard on your family. And there'll be times, especially if you have young children, there'll be times where they would want to know you know what were you doing and why were you doing it and so to try and articulate that I think it's very important but the hardest thing I've ever had to do and, and saying goodbye to my boys you know when I got on the bus and off you go to the the launch pad and a part of you is just you know thinking come on I, I want to see you in six months time don't let anything happen and uh, I wrote about it in, in my book. I kind of said, I think in some ways, space exploration, like any exploration, is a selfish endeavour because, you know, the safe thing to do is to stay at home and and to be there. But if we all did that, then where would we be? I think, you know, I believe that we have to push the boundaries. And if that's what I believe, why should I expect somebody else to do it if I'm not prepared to do it myself? So i kind of put myself in that position
1: mm. so we end each episode by getting guests to tell us their biggest fail regret and win um so just wondering what yours are
2: oh oh gosh that's tricky um <gasps> in a I nutshell think, well, my, my biggest <laughs> my biggest fail was probably at the time it certainly felt like the biggest fail was probably by my a-levels because you know um I had been predicted to pass them with quite good grades. And I think at a very early age, to not achieve that, it knocks your confidence. um, And you kind of think, well, if I didn't get that, you know, Am I going to get the other things I want to do in life? Am I going to get through Santa's? So am I going to pass my pilot's course? You know, am I going to be able to manage the academics that are coming up later in life? So I think for me at the time, that was probably the biggest fail. And looking back, you know, I would just say to anybody who finds themselves in that situation, it's not the end of it by any stretch you know there's i've i've never stopped studying since leaving school um i study to this day i've always got some sort of textbook next to my my bedside table and i think just people learn at different times in their life and sometimes people need different inspirations to learn and Mm. um and for me those inspirations have been since leaving school so um i think that would be my biggest fail My, my biggest win I think probably the biggest win, it has to be being selected as an astronaut, you know, passing ESA's astronaut selection course, without a doubt. Um, but if you ask me what was the biggest win about being an astronaut, it's doing a spacewalk. So <laughs> no. I would, you know, I, wow. I, I I was lucky, very, very fortunate to get a vision to space, but, but doing a spacewalk, there was no guarantees of getting that. So for me personally, that's been an absolute highlight of my life. So that, that's a huge win. Regrets, um, you know, I try not to have regrets. <laughs> I think it's it's better to look back on life and just, you know, think about enjoying the moment and enjoying the journey. You know, it's all about living living your days as they come to the best of your ability, grasping the opportunities and having as much fun as you possibly can along the way. But yeah, I really try not to have regrets in life. A
0: wise man, mm. a wise man. Tim, thank you so, so much. Thank I, you. I love your passion. And your curiosity, I, I love that every day you're learning new things. I think everybody should try to do that. I really hope you get back up there. <laughs> and, uh, so
2: do I. If you
0: do and you've got a little space <laughs> in your suitcase, even if you don't, just ch- double check your luggage before you go. <laughs> yeah. yeah, double check. That I've not put everything out and I'm in there. An absolute mm-hmm. joy to talk to you. Um, I can't wait to see you live as well um, t- Towards in, in October, isn't it? Can't wait to see it you is, live yes, then. That will yeah. be amazing. And thank you for everything that you do. Thank you very much. great talking to you. Cheers. Before we go, one more word about the disruptive new Beauty Buyers Club that's become, well, a little bit of an obsession for Rosie and me. It's Beauty Pie.
1: Thousands of people are already enjoying getting up to five times more health and beauty products for their money. The prices are so low, they make the beauty industry blush. Imagine being able to buy a super expensive Swiss anti-ageing face cream for only £16. Or our famous dermatologist's favourite retinol serum for under
0: £17. Just join and you'll get insider prices on the best beauty products every time you shop. And don't forget to use the promo code LKSENTME, all one word, to get £10 off your first order when you join.